0: Welcome to another episode of the Politics Shed podcast, which supports the information and material you'll find on the Politics Shed website. In this episode, I'm going to look at pressure groups, their definition, the problems of defining them, types of pressure group, their tactics, how we might evaluate their success, and of course, whether they enhance or detract from our democracy. The way most textbooks start with pressure groups is to try to define them. Overall, a good definition of a pressure group is an organisation which tries to influence policy making in elected bodies and governments, legislatures, without seeking public office themselves. This can present a problem if some independent candidates seeking office campaign on a single issue, or if small parties, with little hope of achieving government, and with a very narrow policy range. In other words, they seek to influence policy and elected office. However, overall, the definition holds, and is a useful place to start. One of the commonest ways of providing a definition of different kinds or typologies of pressure groups, and placing them into categories, is to divide them into sectional pressure groups that represent particular sectors of society, such as doctors, or farmers, or nurses, or teachers. Such as the British Medical Association, which represents doctors. And the other category are cause pressure groups, or promotional groups, as they're also called. These campaign for a particular cause or issue, such as Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace. Sectional pressure groups tend to have a defined membership and rather limited goals. Possibly their goals are associated with their membership, quite technical, such as teachers' unions that might focus on education policies. Their overall goal is to represent the interests of their members, their pay, their conditions, their working conditions, and issues which affect them directly. Cause groups, say Greenpeace, Extinction Rebellion, campaign on issues. Their membership is potentially everybody. They are open to anyone who can join. One of the ways they will gain influence is by expanding their membership. While cause groups are open to a wide membership, in fact, possibly anybody, They also might restrict the membership to concentrate on members who have particular expertise. Think tanks fall into this category. Cause, also known as advocacy groups, might promote issues which are controversial or challenge accepted norms, such as gay rights or transgender issues. So there you have it. Cause groups, also known as advocacy or promotional groups. And sectional groups with a representative function. When you begin by trying to define pressure groups, you might imagine you're drawing a circle and including certain pressure groups within those circles, forming Venn diagrams, where some groups overlap with others. It's clear from what I've said already that sectional groups and cause groups both pursue causes. They may be of a different type, but sometimes it's not always easy to distinguish. Teachers unions and trades unions may well campaign on broad issues to do with the environment mental health or well-being issues which they consider might affect their members or particularly relevant to their members and some cause groups have a well defined membership united by a strong ideological identity so while the cause sectional classification is really useful in making sense of the thousands of pressure groups that exist and their different kinds and helps us to understand what they do It has a number of areas which it doesn't really satisfy. First, cause and sectional classifications tell us nothing about the scale and the size and the status and their relationship with government of different pressure groups. Some are very large, some small. As I've already said, it also doesn't really say that there's an overlap with representative sectional pressure groups advocating for certain issues. And finally, it doesn't really tell us much about the aims of representative groups or cause groups. The aims can be quite limited to stop a bypass being built, to put a new crossing over a road, to have someone released from prison. And when these objectives are met, the pressure group tends to disappear, its function having been served. Whereas other cause groups have broad aims that presumably can never be satisfied. The protection of the environment, the protection of oceans, the improvement of democracy, civil rights. However, it's not a bad place to start. Cause and section. This traditional division was supplemented by the work of a British academic called Wynne Grant. Wynne Grant, a professor of politics at Warwick University, added another typology to pressure groups, in a way that he hoped shed some light onto how they operated, the strategies they pursued, how they worked, and why some were more successful than others. This distinction was between insider pressure groups and outsider pressure groups. Wynne Grant published his distinction between insiders and outsiders in the late 1970s, and it provided a brilliant insight into the way pressure groups relate to government and how they work. Insiders, in effect, are pressure groups that have the ability to influence policy from the inside. That is, while policies are being made within government, before they become matters of public debate. To understand this, you have to understand how policies are made. A policy is a set of ideas or proposals that governments have. They may be to reduce crime, to advance the interests of sections of the economy. To deal with environmental problems. And a policy is a proposal of something practically to do about this particular problem. Governments have broad overall objectives. But they generate policies, either in opposition, they publish them in their manifestos, or they propose them while they're in government, as answers, solutions. These policies are formed, these policies are formed within government, and they might involve a process of consultation. Since governments themselves aren't experts on everything they consult groups who are more expert than them so the key phrase to remember here is that insider pressure groups have access to policy making a nice example would be for instance in the 1990s a bee disease started affecting bees in the uk the bee disease was called varroa it was a parasite which lived on bees and led to the death of hives of bees. This was quite concerning for agriculture, and of course beekeepers. The government wished to do something about it. The Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, as it was then, consulted with pressure groups, the British Beekeepers Association, to try to devise a remedy. They wanted a number of questions to be answered. What to be done? How best to combat Varroa? There was a treatment, but the problem was... How to enforce it, since beekeeping spanned a wide variety of activities, from large scale honey production, to amateurs and hobbyists with a hive or two in their gardens or on the roofs of the houses or flats. The beekeepers advised a regulatory code and licensing system and inspectors and fines for not complying. Since Varroa could be treated, the only problem was making sure that the remedies were uniformly carried out. So the government consulted. With beekeepers. British Beekeepers Association, a sectional pressure group that was allowed in the corridors of power, in committees within Whitehall, to help to devise a new law and regulations on beekeeping. That's just one example of something that goes on all the time in government. Government seeks the expertise of pressure groups and gives them access to policy making itself. Writing the words, inserting the clauses, devising the details of new laws or new regulations. One way to think about what access means to an insider pressure group is to think of the experience of going to watch a play. You sit in the audience, what goes on on the stage is what you see and hear. What goes on behind the scenes may be just as important, in fact more so. With policy making in the UK and indeed in many democracies, policies are devised, shaped, written in private, behind the scenes. Access to this then can be very significant. In Whitehall, or that area of government around Parliament, between Parliament and Trafalgar Square, in the offices where civil servants operate, new laws are written and drafted proposals written and drafted, and regulations defined. Regulations may be based upon already existing legislative power, something the government can enact immediately. They may require secondary legislation. That's the defining or adding to laws already existing, but needing the approval of a committee in Parliament. Or it may require a new law giving the government powers it didn't already possess. piece of primary legislation or new law is drafted behind the scenes in Whitehall where politicians and civil servants work to construct the bill. It may be that Parliament has some forewarning of this. A green paper might be issued as a discussion document. Recent reformers of Parliament have introduced pre-legislative scrutiny where parliamentary committees can consider bills in draft form to some extent. But largely, the first Parliament gets to hear of a Bill is in the first reading, when it's announced in Parliament. Then begins the public process of lawmaking. And you may consider that Parliament is at something of a disadvantage, since the detailed work on the Bill, the consultation and the expert advice has already taken place. And MPs, with many other functions to perform, have to read, consider, and form a judgment on the Bill as it passes through Parliament. The public bit, we see, the performance, as it were, takes place in Parliament. The press can observe this. You can go along and watch the debates. The first reading, the second reading, the committee stage, the third reading, its passage through the House of Lords, and so on. But in many ways, although parliamentarians can amend bills, insert suggestions, try to delete elements of a bill. Largely, they operate on what they are given. The bill presented to them can be quite difficult to change in Parliament substantially. And if a government has a large majority, it will generally pass the bills it's written in the privacy of Whitehall whether Parliament likes it or not. Sometimes this is referred to as an elective dictatorship. You can see then, especially in a British parliamentary system, without the separation of powers you find in the United States, that access to the private part of writing bills, regulations or policies is extremely useful and very powerful. Therefore, win grants, definition as some groups having access and calling them insiders and some groups excluded from access as outsiders provided a brilliant insight into the way politics works in the UK. One of the most significant features of this insider-outsider distinction is what it tells us about the strategies pressure groups employ and their relationship with government. Those pressure groups government considers legitimate, ones they'll work with, and those they don't consider legitimate and they won't work with. It also shows the privileged status that some pressure groups have, and what that might suggest about representation in our democracy, and the important principle of equality of representation. So insiders have access to policy making decisions, but they have to play by the rules of the game. First, they have to fulfilled some kind of useful service for the government. Generally, this is by providing expertise, knowledge, evidence, research that the government needs to use. Because as I said earlier, governments don't know everything about everything. There's also a price to pay. The insider must accept certain limitations on how they'll go about lobbying or exerting influence. Generally, direct action, protests, criticising the government is frowned upon and might exclude pressure groups from insider status. Therefore, some of the most powerful pressure groups in Britain, with the greatest influence behind the scenes, do it quite invisibly to most of us. Another useful distinction that can be made is between core insiders and peripheral insiders. Core insider pressure groups who have long-term relationships are regularly consulted, in fact permanently consulted, by government, almost forming a part of government itself. Something like the Association of Chief Police Officers or the Confederation of British Industry. These pressure groups seem to be almost attached to government. And have considerable influence behind the scenes. In the post-war years, the National Farmers Union had such a close relationship with agricultural policy making in Britain that it was seen as a kind of British, if not iron triangle, then iron partnership, where farmers and politicians shaped policy together, excluding those pressure groups that seemed to be critical of the mass production cheap food policies, which dominated agricultural policy in the 60s, 70s and 80s and may have contributed, or been largely responsible for, the advent of mad cow disease in the 90s. A subcategory of insider pressure group are prisoner insiders or captive insiders. These are insider pressure groups that work so closely with the government, their entire influence depends upon the government. They are the most invisible of pressure groups in many ways. An example might be the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is a non-departmental public body. Non-departmental public bodies, such as quangos or quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organizations, operate in a kind of gray zone operate in a kind of grey zone between public and independent organisations. The Equality and Human Rights Commission was created by the Equality Act in 2006. So it is at arm's length, public body, created by the government and may be considered a captive insider. Many more pressure groups can be seen as peripheral insiders or niche pressure groups. They have an expertise, like the British Beekeepers Association, and they'll be consulted, briefly, periodically, on things they know about. They have a more marginal influence on the government, but still, when the issue is significant, their influence can be significant. Outsider pressure groups, on the other hand, conform very much to our image of pressure groups. They conduct demonstrations, public displays of support or objection, publicity campaigns, and so on. They have no direct access, therefore their influence is said to be indirect. They are attempting to change public opinion, playing, as it were, a long game. If they can influence the public, make an issue salient, then maybe the government will change its mind, or the opposition will adopt that policy. This lack of direct access can be divided into those outsiders by necessity. Those who simply have nothing to offer the government. They don't have the skills or the expertise or the membership. Membership can be very useful to a government, especially when a government wants to implement a policy. An organisation with a large membership can assist the government in the implementation, not just the devising of policy. If you don't have membership, you can't bring support, and you don't have expertise, then you're an outsider. You may be excluded because your policies or ideas are simply not important to the government. You can see how this might have happened to trades unions from the 1960s and 70s when there was the era of corporatism, or beer and sandwiches at number 10, when trade unions were very much a part of the Labour governments, devising prices and incomes policies, trying to set the agenda inside government, characterised by meetings, where beer and sandwiches were provided. And then the advent of Mrs Thatcher, when unions were kept at arm's distance, or whether they liked it or not, became outsiders, This group then are outsiders by necessity. There are then those pressure groups who are outsiders by choice. If playing by the rules is unacceptable, if what you advocate or you're campaigning for is something that will seem to be less legitimate, less appealing to your membership, if you're working on the inside, you may fear being seen as selling out to the government. So these pressure groups choose to stay outside of government influence, stay outside of the policy making process, maintaining their independence unsullied by accusations of sellouts. Studies of pressure group strategies and pressure group behaviour show that insiders outnumber outsiders in a ratio of something like nine to one. There are far more groups operating with a relationship with policymaking in the policymaking process behind the scenes, then there are exerting influence purely as outsiders. Outsiders may well use direct action to try and prevent something. Stop the culling of badgers, for instance. Prevent the sowing of GM crops, or like Extinction Rebellion. Block the traffic in the streets in order to draw attention to a particular issue. They are attempting to frame the issue, to change the way it's perceived. Outsider pressure groups then frame objections to fracking as objections to environmental damage and move the issue away from energy policy. Objections to GM crops are framed as interference with nature, the dangers of science out of control, and they move the issue away from food production. The importance of framing an issue means that insiders are not adverse to engaging in publicity campaigns. And therefore, you can look at insiders and insider groups as low profile and high profile. Some insider groups conduct publicity campaigns, produce periodicals, use the press, the media and the internet to try to frame issues the way they wish them to be perceived by the public. Whereas a low profile insider, again like the Association of Chief Police Officers, avoids publicity, press releases, demonstrations and keeps a very low profile. So while indulging in publicity campaigns, trying to alter public opinion, is not exclusive to outsider groups and certainly blurs some of the boundaries between the two, we might ask ourselves which strategy is most effective, insider or outsider. The sheer number of insider pressure groups in relation to outsider pressure groups suggests that insiderdom or insider status is more effective. The pressure group 38 degrees, which takes its name from the temperature at which snowflakes can form an avalanche, campaigns on a wide range of issues using outsider tactics, the internet particularly. It claims to have a million members, but a million members counts people who have accessed the website, signed a petition, follow them on social media. In this sense, it can lead us to overestimate the effectiveness of mass member outsider pressure groups or publicity campaigns in general, since this slacktivism, or rather perfunctory participation, clicking as a form of political activity, which requires minimal amounts of actual commitment, may create the impression that they're more successful than they are. As well as a few high-profile campaigns, such as Rights for Gurkha Soldiers, led by Joanna Lumley, might suggest that campaigning, with outsider status, is more effective than it is. The number of insiders and the amount of resources that organisations, particularly commercial organisations such as companies and corporations, devote to insider lobbying suggests that insider status is far more effective, at least in achieving change in the short and medium term. 50% of insiders with access to government or who are consulted regularly are corporate or commercial businesses. Only 20% are non-governmental organisations, with the remainder operating in the grey zone as extensions of government, the captive insiders and quangos. It's true in the UK, and far more true in the United States, that money used for lobbying behind the scenes is seen as far more effective than blocking the traffic or demonstrating. As a case study on the effectiveness of insider pressure groups, you might consider the Health and Social Care Act of 2012. Parliament has passed many acts relating to health and social care over the years. And in 2022, the government's going to pass another Health and Social Care Act. However, in 2012, that Health and Social Care Act was one of the most significant transformations of health in Britain since the inception of the National Health Service itself. It was introducing a radical new idea, the internal market. The liberalisation of the internal workings of the health service, with doctors and hospitals commissioning for services from each other. This was seen by many as an opportunity for private healthcare providers to take more of a role in the health service. The health secretary, Andrew Lansley, consulted with a wide range of pressure groups and think tanks, including the MHP Group and Incisive Healthcare. Incisive Healthcare was founded by Bill Morgan, who had been a conservative advisor on healthcare and was now a professional lobbyist on healthcare, which is a nice example of the revolving door syndrome, whereby individuals move from government pressure groups and back again sometimes, lobbying the people they used to work for or working for the people they once used to lobby. Bill Morgan was able to bring together his own interests in lobbying, his own conservative views and the views of private healthcare providers. In this way, the providers of private healthcare services had access to the writing of a new and transformative bill providing them with new opportunities so while insider pressure groups may take the form of small organizations and lobby groups they are really working for and the front organizations of big corporations and big corporations of course themselves use insider tactics insider strategies to influence government with the enormous resources that corporations can bring. For instance, under Theresa May, the Nissan car company lobbied hard for tax breaks, incentives for keeping manufacturing in Sunderland. I'm sure on many occasions you have wondered why governments don't do something about an obvious problem. It may be protecting the environment more vigorously, regulating banks, controlling money laundering, or the ownership of property by foreign gangsters. On all these occasions, it may seem obvious the government should act. But the government does not act alone. And behind the scenes, very powerful lobbyists are working with resources far greater than Extinction Rebellion or Plain Crazy, who can demonstrate and make more noise. So you might well consider direct action, demonstrating, making a lot of noise as a lot of sound and fury. But often not resulting in victory or success. For instance, students in 2010 made a lot of noise in protest against increasing student fees. But fees went up just the same. This, of course, doesn't mean that outsider campaigns fail. And did they regularly succeed? And when they succeed, it often captures headlines. I've mentioned before, the Gurkhas, Joanna Lumley, and so on. Outsider pressure groups, such as Liberty, have campaigned and used the Human Rights Act very successfully on multiple occasions to frustrate government after government in their immigration policy and deportations, or to protect human rights. Another example might be the pressure group Stonewall, one of the most effective LGBT groups in Britain. And it campaigned very effectively using mostly direct action tactics to change public attitudes to the adoption of children by gay couples and the repeal of the 1988 Education Acts, Section 28, which made it illegal to promote homosexuality in schools. Their success was largely a long process of changing public attitudes through direct action and it should also be pointed out that insiders, though the strategy is very effective, don't always get their way. For example, almost all the big corporations in the UK and the pressure group the Confederation of British Industry were firmly opposed to Britain leaving the EU, but we left nonetheless. Before I leave behind the classification of insider and outsider pressure groups devised by Wynne Grant, we should consider some of the criticisms, or at least modifications to the theory or the typology, that have happened since 1978. It is argued that insider-outsider status isn't as clear as it used to be. For a start, it's much easier to campaign nowadays, given the access to the internet, and social media, setting up a campaign, a leaderless campaign, without headquarters, signing petitions online, all become possible in the world of virtual campaigning. It's also argued that many outsider pressure groups, determined to preserve their identity and ideological credibility, actually do pursue insider and outsider tactics. Greenpeace often seen as the ideal example of an outsider, pursues what have been described as wetsuit and business suit strategies, that is to say, demonstrating, capturing the headlines through direct action, and also forming strong and enduring relationships with government, consulting on policies, since the environment is one of those issues which all parties seem to be concerned with in some way or another. So the criticism of insider status suggests that it exaggerates the barriers to access. For example, there are a number of routes to influencing policy which don't rely simply on having good relationships with civil servants in Whitehall. Devolution has given the British establishment a number of other access points. The Welsh and Scots parliaments, the Northern Ireland Assembly, and while we were members of the EU, the EU... But nonetheless, even the EU has an influence over Britain, to this day. And lobbying the EU, which might well set a policy example for this country, is still worthwhile. Reforms to select committees in Parliament, making them more powerful, gives a voice to outsider pressure groups and lobbyists in Parliament, visible to the press and setting an agenda and framing issues. The courts are increasingly more successful as a tool for pressure groups. The number of judicial reviews has steadily increased in this country as politics has become increasingly judiciised and judges accused of being enemies of the people as they get involved in politics, immigration issues and the environment and civil rights. Changes to legislation, such as the Freedom of Information Act and the Human Rights Act have given many more opportunities for pressure groups to use both the courts and to access information for more effective campaigning. All of this adds up to a very different environment to the idea of the exclusivity of insiders and the excludedness of outsiders. Outsider pressure groups are said to be more effective these days. I mentioned social media and the internet. Direct action has also seemed to have been more effective, partly because it can be so easily organised online and through the social media and through mobile phones. Poll tax riots effectively overturned the poll tax. The petrol protests of 2001, in which a combination of farmers and haulage companies managed to change the policy on tax increases on petrol and the stop the war coalition, all seen as examples where going on the streets, protesting, direct action, blockading, were effective. It has been pointed out that the insider's insider, the National Farmers Union, now has a rival in Farmers for Action, which promotes direct action for farmers, into protection of milk subsidies and in fact the National Farmers Union have moved their headquarters from London to Warwickshire, suggesting that they see less importance in close behind-the-scenes ties with government. The issues themselves have changed. It is said that the issue of every election is ultimately the economy. It's the economy, stupid. Governments are elected or governments fail depending on how well they are perceived to run the economy. However, other issues, particularly the environment, challenge this idea that the dominant issue of any time is the economy. Environmental groups have become mainstream. Now, almost everybody and every political party is concerned with the environment. In this sense, the old typology of insider and outsider has certainly changed. Governments consult more and government is more open than it used to be. However, this shouldn't be overstated since the majority of pressure groups seek insider status and it is corporations and think tanks that have the greatest influence. So in any consideration of pressure group influence, insider or outsider status is clearly very important. It's now time to consider the tactics used by pressure groups and the resources available to pressure groups. One factor in the success of some pressure groups is their large membership. The Royal, Society for the, Prefec- the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has more members than all the political parties in Britain put together. Membership means fees or subscriptions, donations. With these, they can hire full-time staff like the RSP like the RSPCA the Royal Society for the Protection of Animals which has 1600 staff can publish magazines and maintain a national network of volunteers however a large membership doesn't guarantee success the best example of this One of the largest pressure groups in the 1980s was the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Huge demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of members, but nuclear weapons were not removed. Other factors come into play. One factor which is particularly significant to cause groups is salience. Or how important an issue is perceived to be at a given time. If a pressure group is campaigning, say, to restore the specialness of Sunday and close shops, they're unlikely to succeed. This is not an issue which is either popular or desired. Environmental issues are highly salient. An issue may gain salience suddenly by an event, something in the news, a terrorist outrage. One of the best examples of the importance of salience was the success of the Snowdrop campaign. This was a small, not particularly well-funded pressure group with not a great membership that successfully led to the complete banning of handguns in Britain. This was because of an event, the 1996 Dunblane Primary School Massacre, in which 16 children were shot in their primary school. This altered public opinion rapidly. It drew the attention of gun control to the British people and led to a rapid and successful conclusion of a short-lived campaign. In effect, the Snowdrop campaign was pushing against an open door. Another important concept here is the Overton Window. The Overton Window is an idea which suggests that certain things at certain times in history are acceptable and others not. Campaigning for gay rights in the 1950s would have been fruitless. Trying to open shops on a Sunday, similarly. The Overton window are those issues considered acceptable. They are within the frame of what might be possible, what people might consider. And outside of the Overton window, those things which are considered unacceptable, not to be considered. This will change over time. So you can see the context in which pressure groups operate whether the government in power is sympathetic with their aims, whether the British people consider the issue salient or within the Overton window. While these things may be outside of the control of pressure groups, there are factors over which they have more control. Leadership, tactics, timing and expertise. Examples of clever tactics might be 2016, when the AA, Automobile Association, campaigned successfully and lobbied the government with expert figures and expert analysis of how mobile phones led to accidents, leading to a ban on the use of mobile phones in cars. Clever use of access points, how Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace have successfully used both the courts and the European Union was noted earlier, or the successful use of social media, such as the global internet pressure group AVAZ, Avaz have campaigned organizing people's climate marches, or thirty eight degrees, with the successful use of the internet and campaigning to recruit members and support for their issues, of civil rights and environmental protection, and good government. When the Manchester United football star Marcus Rashford threw his support behind free school meals during holidays, during lockdown, the government was almost forced to respond favourably. Full pressure groups then will be successful for more reasons than simply having a very large membership or a lot of money. Clever use of tactics, knowing which access points to use, developing the expertise to make them useful for government or persuasive to the people, and in the right context, an issue which is both salient and acceptable, may well determine why some pressure groups Are more successful than others. It is, however, important to emphasise that in the British system particularly, where insider status is such an advantage, and governments tend to dominate parliament, often with large majorities produced by a first-past-the-post electoral system, if the government is steadfastly against an issue, there's little pressure groups can do about it. The Stop the War coalition was unsuccessful in stopping the war, The BMA's opposition to seven-day working in hospitals in Scotland failed and student opposition to tuition fees also failed. Governments with large majorities, especially at the beginning of a parliament with a few years to run, are unlikely to succumb to even significant public opinion even when it's supported by celebrities or it's well organized. If the government doesn't want to do it, it's unlikely to happen. However, Governments are more susceptible to public opinion as they come closer to elections, and there may well be a range of issues which they are quite ambivalent about. If a government is steadfastly opposed to an issue, pressure groups can turn to the opposition or play a long game. Governments don't stay in power forever. Finally, it's time to consider whether pressure groups are good for democracy. Do they enhance democracy or detract from it? In a pluralist, open, liberal society, groups will form because we live in a diverse society. If people can freely express their opinions, they will form organisations to enhance and magnify their influence and representation. So let's deal with those arguments first. And the first one is... A healthy democracy and a healthy civil society is enhanced by pressure groups. They allow minority interests and minority voices to be heard. By banding together, by forming campaign groups, by expressing their views, pressure groups allow them to do this. And in that sense, they overcome one of the oldest criticisms of democracy itself. It's the potential for a tyranny of the majority. All democracies, naturally enough, are majoritarian systems. Governments are elected by some kind of majority. They represent the majority. What then of minority views, views that may one day themselves turn out to have been more insightful, or minority groups who may be subject to discrimination? Who speaks for them? The answer, pressure groups. Pressure groups might also provide an answer to the question, who represents us between elections? In this sense, Pressure groups answer a problem with representative democracy. Since we don't have direct democracy, where we participate directly ourselves, instead we elect politicians to represent us, it creates a tension. A tension between what politicians promise to do, what they have a mandate to do, and what they actually carry out. The longer governments are in power, the longer representative bodies exist, the weaker their mandate becomes. They do things we didn't expect them to do, They don't do things we expected them to do, or they promised to do. So pressure groups hold politicians to account for these failings or for changes in popular opinion between elections. Democracies are also more than simply voting, more than simply casting your vote in elections. Participation can take many forms, and a healthy democracy will generally be considered to be healthier if people can participate by taking part. Active democracy, active participation. In this sense, pressure groups contribute to a social capital. They educate, they inform. They allow people to participate in a way that enhances not only their own understanding of democracy, but their own commitment to that democracy. They act as cohesive forces, drawing us together. Minority groups feel themselves to have a voice. Minority opinions are expressed. And people are able to learn, take part, debate, and feel that democracy is something they are committed to. So they strengthen the fibres and sinews of democracy itself. They allow democracy to be responsive, to take into account minority views, to take into account the views of experts. They enhance the quality of that debate, allowing people who may know better than politicians Express their views. As we saw earlier when discussing insider pressure groups, it's clearly a truism to say that politicians don't know everything about everything. And indeed, the civil service, while it's a great reservoir of experience and knowledge, also doesn't know everything about everything. Consultation is an important part of the legislative process of making good laws and also of enacting good policies. Pressure groups provide an important source of expertise, of research and of knowledge, enhancing the quality of what governments do, as well as providing ideas and policy alternatives. Think tanks can be seen to be important in this world. Many things, climate change, for instance, were once minority views. Protection of the environment was seen as quite eccentric back in the 1960s and 70s. But those voices were being expressed and could be heard, and eventually became dominant views themselves, and more accepted, at least. So pressure groups reflect the diversity of society, allow alternative forms of representation, alternative routes to participate, and enhance the quality of the democracy itself. of pressure groups will generally point to the inequality of representation, and in particular the unequal influence exerted by corporate groups, big businesses, multinationals, groups with resources of money in particular, or who are seen as important to the overall success of the economy. In other words, their views are given a kind of priority. It's the economy, stupid. The old adage that really all politics is about who runs the economy best means that corporate groups will tend to exert greater influence in free market economies. Here you find a tension then between democracy, representation and the organisation of government and the allowances made in a free market economy. Business and corporations are seen to distort representation by exerting excessive influence, by being given an exceptionalist priority. Take for instance, as an example, the alcohol industry or the drinks lobby. They use all the techniques that pressure groups might employ to exert influence. They form alliances across industry, across Europe. They offer hospitality to politicians. They advertise. They carry out publicity campaigns. They conduct research Into the effects or otherwise of alcohol and they remind politicians of the importance of the alcohol and the beverage industry to the economy as such as a society we've tended to ignore alcohol as a danger as a drug treat it as a kind of exception while other just as harmful drugs might be treated quite differently in other words the alcohol lobby have successfully exerted an influence possibly against the best interests of people as a whole. You might say the same of transport industries, where the emphasis is on cars, on agriculture, where the emphasis might be on cheap, mass-produced food, and banks, who are allowed pretty much to do as they please. In the United States, K Street is identified as the heartland of the lobbying industry, where the arts of the professional lobbyist are used to exert influence, excessive influence, or disproportionate influence over Congress. For every Congressman and every Senator, there are said to be a thousand lobbyists working in Washington DC alone, exerting influence primarily on behalf of corporations, or at least those are the most funded. The pharmaceutical industry make a great case study here, but also a powerful press group such as the National Rifle Association are worth studying. For their excessive influence in representing what is, after all, a minority view. Use the resources found on the Politics Shed site to look up agency capture, the revolving door, and iron triangles to learn more about the power of lobbying in the United States. The debate about the positive or negative impact of pressure groups on a democracy is sometimes termed the pluralist versus elitist view of pressure groups. Pluralists emphasise that if you can construct a society where pressure groups balance one against the other, all voices are heard, you gain all the advantages I mentioned earlier, enhancing democracy, improving public debate, and so forth. Those who take the elitist view will say that the wealthy, the powerful, minorities, and corporations exert an influence which is malign and damaging and distorting to the fabric of democracy itself, and at times, downright corrupting. But as I said at the beginning of this section, it's difficult to imagine a pluralist liberal democracy without pressure groups. And indeed, in James Madison's famous paper as part of the Federalist Papers, Federalist Paper 10, he observes that pressure groups, or factions as he calls them, are a natural component and therefore the question becomes not are they good or are they bad implying something might be done to abolish them but instead how can democracies live with the inevitability of pressure groups control them regulate in trying to control or modify the damaging influence of pressure groups generally the answer resolves itself onto openness and disclosure freedom of information The ability of citizens to see what is going on and who is exerting influence. And who that influence is being exerted upon. For Madison, the answer, since pressure groups or faction was inevitable, was to disperse power. Allow allow no one part to dominate the whole. The separation of powers, checks and balances, a healthy functioning judiciary, the rule of law were well, all, to some extent, answers to the power of the majority and the disproportionate influence of minorities. And generally, the answers tend to resolve along those lines, that if we know who is exerting influence, we can understand it better. If we can control or limit that influence to some degree, or at least on politicians, we can modify its malign effects. So the open disclosure of interests of politicians... An understanding of how pressure groups are funded and organised, of where they are applying their influence and how it is done, is the best defence against the dangers of elitism. Sometimes pressure groups are also accused of being undemocratic in themselves, since their leadership is not elected, not accountable to the electorate or even the membership at times. Unions can sometimes be criticised, low turnout in union leadership elections or organisations like Greenpeace, which are seen to be quite hierarchical. A wide membership, but a narrow professional leadership. The counter to this might be that pressure groups are not parties. They're not seeking election. Therefore, their primary source of authority is on the quality of their argument, on the validity of their cause, rather than a mass membership. Some pressure groups, particularly sectional pressure groups, will be more reliant on proving a substantial membership, but cause groups rely for their validity on the quality of the cause and the importance of the argument. A final criticism which is often directed at pressure groups is to do with the tactics they use, particularly direct action, blocking traffic, staging protests, making a lot of noise. This is particularly true with Extinction Rebellion and recent environmental groups who have disrupted motorway traffic and so on. The argument being that this is undemocratic, or at least unjustified, since they are impinging on the rights of others. Their right to protest conflicts with the right of other people to get to work and to meet their appointments and to travel home. These tactics might be criticised simply as not particularly effective since they alienate public opinion but they do, at their root, draw attention to the influence of minority groups and their justification for exerting it. That brings this podcast on pressure groups to an end. I may have missed some arguments, and there may be more examples, and they are continually updated on the Politics Shed website. Follow the links below.